0: This is an HMP Governance Lab podcast, and today, Holly Jarman and I, Scott Greer, will be talking about federal regulations and the rulemaking process, beginning with a simple question. Regulation, rulemaking, what is this even about?
1: Oh, dear. So, a while back, I got halfway through the class, and I had a student come up to me and ask me what a regulation was, and they didn't know, and I... It was um, so ever since I have been very careful to explain exactly what the difference between statute and regulation is. So when we talk about legislation, we're talking about most of the time primary legislation, laws that go through a legislature, go through Congress or go through a state legislature. And if you listen to our podcast on the legislative process, you'll know how that works. Um, And the law gets passed first. And the law instructs bits of government quite often to do different things. So, for example, a piece of legislation could authorize the uh, and instruct the FDA to create some regulations on tobacco control. And so the regulations happen after the, the main law. And so quite often they get called secondary legislation in a lot of places. So. Regulations are made by parts of government that are not the legislature, that are um, most often agencies. And so those those government agencies go through a process whereby they consult with stakeholders and the public. and, And they're required to do that in a particular way. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And they basically... Fire that process, then draft and create a set of rules that put the main law into practice, essentially. And so it's kind of an important process because those regulations interpret sometimes the, the main law because legislation is not always clear on how something should happen, or even what the causation is um, to, to get from the law to the desired outcome. And so regulations are a really important step. They interpret primary law, they put it into practice effectively, and um, they really implement hopefully the intent of the legislature in, in putting the law into place, but that's not always the case.
0: And the case for this is there's a lot of things that are really detailed. The Affordable Care Act had about 1,100 instances of the phrase the secretary shall, because what the secretary shall do is things like meet with state insurance regulators to determine the best way to calculate the medical loss ratio. There's no hope that Congress could write good legislation that would specify how you calculate medical loss ratios for insurers in different parts of the country. It's hopeless. So that's why you have to delegate the authority to make a rule to the agency, even if it annoys certain very conservative lawyers.
1: Right, because they they would never agree on how that should happen, and then you would end up with endless bickering over all the details of the law. So quite often, a great way to read a piece of law, actually, to understand its regulatory intent, is to look for phrases like, the secretary shall, um, because it's a direction to another part of government, um, in this case an agency to um, do a particular th- set of things and that agency itself has discretion which is bounded again by statute but also by its daily practice and sort of precedent if you will um, around what's sort of acceptable for that agency to to do um, and so within those boundaries the regulator then, creates new rules and guidance in consultation uh, as appropriate and so following rules on how to consult um, and then puts the policy into practice and uh, regulation can be really important because doing it badly totally negates the potential effect of the policy Uh, so if you pass a law that's relatively ambiguous but then the regulatory agency doesn't interpret that in a way that works with let's say the businesses or the organizations that are being regulated and they don't get any regulatory compliance then you're just not going to see the inf- intended effects of the original law.
0: So the EPA for example is under the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act granted the authority to identify a chemical that is bad for clean air and clean water, and regulate, down to zero sometimes, the quantity of that chemical that's going to be in air or water that's permissible. Now, it does this under a law called the Administrative Procedure Act, known as the APA, which was passed in the 1940s, actually by Republicans eager to constrain Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal agencies, which were doing all sorts of stuff. And the APA maps out the rulemaking process so let's talk about the APA.
1: Right. And the APA is a good thing, I think, generally, because it, it says, uh, it, it outlines the ways in which government agencies have to interact with the public. And it has some really important parts which relate to transparency and sort of procedural fairness, which is really uh, quite key. So... Um, agencies have to follow the administrative procedures act and it has rules for things like the publication of documents notification about hearings public consultation in general so they they have to publish certain statements they have to give the public a good clear idea consistently about what they're doing and they have to follow certain procedures for Public consultation, which is um, really important for us because, as hopefully advocates in the area of public health or healthcare, um, we're trying to influence this process. And so, we're going to talk today a bit about how you can um, try to influence this process. So, an important thing to know is that there has to be, uh, when an agency makes regulations, a statement of rulemaking authority which has to be published in the Federal Register for all proposed rules and final rules. So what does that mean? So um, the agency has to say something about where it derives the authority to do this thing from. Uh, And so agencies get their authority to make regulations through uh, a combination of things, laws passed by Congress. Uh, those establishing the agency and giving it broad authority as well as those uh, laws that say the secretary shall um, that direct the agency to address a specific problem Uh, they can also get directions via executive order so in that case the president is delegating authority to the agency to do something and directing it to to take an action so to go back to the APA, they have to make a statement. Uh, the agency has to make a statement about where their rulemaking authority comes from and, and what they're proposing to do. Um, where do we look for that? Well, uh, there are actually some companies that will charge you a lot of money for this information. So listen carefully. Um, you need to take a look at the unified agenda. So agencies will publish a regulatory plan every fall. And. Um, And they'll publish an agenda of regulatory and deregulatory actions every spring and fall. So they are required to report these things regularly. And there are a couple of different ways you can get at this information. Um, You can use reginfo.gov. We'll put these in the the podcast notes. Regulations.gov. You can look at the Federal Register, which is online. And you can look at the Government Printing Office. So All of these places will have information about um, what's on the agenda, what's forthcoming, and because the agencies are required uh, by the APA to issue notices about what they're considering and uh, what their authority to do that is, as well as uh, other kinds of notifications, we do really have a lot of information about the the plans of regulatory agencies. So um, the regulatory agency will issue uh, what essentially is an opportunity for comment. So um, once the agency has decided that it's going to issue a rule, um, it will start a process of informal information gathering. Uh, and at this stage, the public can kind of petition the agency uh, for the rulemaking to happen. So um, once the agency has decided it, it, it wants to look at a particular issue, um, you can, as a, just as an ordinary person, petition them to say, yeah, we, we want this to happen. We want some rulemaking on this issue. And here's why we think it's important. The agency publishes intent in the Federal Register. So luckily for us, the Federal Register is online and it's searchable by topic. So we can take a look by agency, but also by subject area. Um, and the agency issues an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. Uh, and that's the point at which the formal public consultation begins. So as this is all going on, there's still informal consultation. So um, stakeholders that are close to the agency may well still be c- communicating with officials and trying to put their po- point across in an informal way. But lucky for us, there is also a formal public consultation that has to happen by law. Um, And so that's our opportunity to be part of the conversation. Um, So the proposed rules that are put forward by the agency can be scrutinized by the president's office, uh, and they can also be scrutinized by this little regulatory agency called the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs before they get published in the Federal Register. So that's worth knowing.
0: This was created explicitly under Ronald Reagan as a choke point Because when they came into office, the Republicans in the Reagan administration perceived this enormous apparatus of federal bureaucracies that they didn't think were adequately constrained by the APA, and that certainly didn't seem adequately responsive to the White House. The White House came in on a deregulatory agenda, and they found acre upon acre of agencies that had been issuing new regulations for decades. That wasn't what Ronald Reagan thought he was there to do. So the OIRA became a choke point. Everything's got to go through. And it turned out presidents of both parties quite like this because they don't really want various federal agencies off doing stuff simply because it's popular or scientifically based or pays off a campaign donor or helps the secretary prepare their campaign for governor of some state. The White House wants to keep control of this. And occasionally there's a gimmick. So, for example, the Obama administration's OIRA was into gimmicks about data as if data had not been discovered until 2009. But by and large, it's a straightforwardly political operation to make sure that no agency is doing things which are detrimental to whatever the agenda of the White House is.
1: So at this point, the agency has decided to issue a rule. The agency has published its intent in the Federal Register. And then after that, uh, the agency issues a proposed rule uh, via a notice of proposed rulemaking. So that's when you want to go to regulations.gov and look it up. And you can look up these proposed rules and then there's an opportunity to comment on those rules as a member of the public. So the comment period is generally at least 30 days. Uh, It can be in some cases 60 days or more. And um, individual members of the public can ask for more time to submit comments, which sometimes happens where stakeholders feel um, something's been inadequately uh, explored, or there's a serious problem with the proposed rule, uh, they might request more for more time. Um, and the comment period can also be reopened, or that, though that's not particularly common. Um, the agency, in addition to uh soliciting these comments, can also hold public hearings. Uh, and so that's uh the kind of situation where if you ever tune into these hearings, some of these are available publicly. You can see the recordings. Um you have a bunch of people standing up and saying I'm from the grocer's agency or whoever and um, this is my position. And then the next person asks a question and then uh, it's, a, it's an endless series of stakeholders normally at these meetings. Um, but it helps the agency to kind of gain some valuable information. The key thing here is to notice that The agency is just as dependent quite often on the sector that it's regulating as the sector is on the regulator. So there's this kind of dependent relationship here. Um, The regulator wants to pass regulations that work and that fit and that don't rock the boat too much with its um, stakeholders. So that's important to bear in mind uh, in terms of trying to interpret the regulatory politics here um the agency can also allow like a reply period so after the comment period is done um if you go on there and you scroll through and you're like good grief there's a lot of comments here on this particular piece of um this particular rule that i'm interested in but the comment period is closed sometimes there's a reply period and so as a member of the public you can um reply to the comments after that the agency makes a final rule and the important caveat here is that it's only partially based on the comments. So we'd be a bit naive, I think, to expect that these comments would somehow translate into um, changes in the rule um, because the rule is politically motivated. It's it's put forward um, either from directions based on, on congressional legislation, agency discretion or uh, directions from the president. So um, it's a partisan thing. Um, but there's almost certainly, uh, probably at least one intern, probably a bunch of interns looking at all those comments, summarizing them. And that does feed into the discussion. Um, so your mileage may vary in terms of how different the final rule is to compare to the proposed rule.
0: And bear in mind that government is information poor, like most big organizations and like most people. So they do use these regulations to learn things and they learn detailed things. If we write the regulation this we will way, we will have this unexpected effect and that wasn't what we want to do, thanks. They'll also use it to test the extent to which they're gonna get political blowback. So one of the striking things is if you wanna see a lot of comments, look at anything to do with e-cigarettes because anything to do with vaping produces this avalanche of comments, most of them cut and paste. Some social movements sent around text and said, here's where you submit your comment. But it's just amazing the extent to which vapors really get organized and comment on anything that might affect them.
1: Yeah, so at this stage, it's important to note that the president and Oira can add opinions. So they can come in again at the end of the process and um, influence the decision on the final rule uh, at this stage. So after all this, Uh, the consultation is done and the final rule goes into effect, usually 30 days after it's published. So there's a couple of weird exceptions to this. So don't be surprised if you scroll through regulations.gov and you see some different terms. Um, One is an interim final rule, which is a final rule that's published before a proposed rule has been made. Um, It's relatively minor, so it's effective on at the point at which it's published, Um, it can be altered by public comments uh, after the fact. Then there's a direct final rule. And these rules go into effect unless really significant bad comments are received. So in both these cases, we're talking about relatively minor or maybe less controversial rules. So the rules are published themselves in the Code of Federal Regulations And that's another source of information. I would say if you're going to take this forward, take a look at regulations.gov. It's accessible to anybody. And um, go and find some regulations that are pertinent to you. I think it's important to understand and explore just the extent to which policy happens through regulation um, rather than necessarily through primary legislation. So while in our legislative process podcast, we have explained that The legislature is not that active right now. Regulators are still active. Agencies are still active, and they've been producing regulations. The government produces a huge volume of regulations all the time um, on some very mundane things and some very controversial things. So it's worth understanding in a period of legislative gridlock how you can advance your agenda through the regulatory process.
0: And can I just add a coda about the afterlife of regulations? So the Congressional Review Act, which was a thing passed in the glory days of Newt Gingrich butting heads with Bill Clinton, says that a new Congress can review new federal regulations of essentially the previous presidency within 60 legislative days of the end of the presidency. So it's possible to come in as a new sweep, for example, the early Trump administration, with a Republican Congress, and they took out 14 regulations that had been passed at the end of the Obama administration. And they can do this with 60 legislative days. So now the trick is that you try to use up as many days as possible in the lame duck sessions so that there's very few legislative days for the new Congress to consider repealing whatever regulations you've passed. The other thing you can do, of course, is this is America, you take them to court, and There's a lot of jurisprudence on the APA. There's a lot of jurisprudence on federal rulemaking. There's entire areas of federal courts that are specialized in analyzing it. For example, the Court of International Trade, which is the place to go if you want to argue about the definition of a boiler in order to figure out the appropriate tariff. I've got a friend who had a beautiful Harvard-Stanford education and spent 18 months in New York City learning the intricacies of boilers, specifically how they're defined for tariff purposes. That's how you challenge a regulation in the trade world. Well, judges, for example, if they think that a rule was capriciously made or unmade, that's grounds to knock it out. Capriciousness means I did it because my friends didn't like it. I did it because my donors didn't like it. I did it because my boss, the president, didn't like it. So capriciousness is something you want to avoid, and you avoid that precisely by good compliance with the APA and transparent, even if, somewhat slimy, use of evidence is crucial to this process. Because otherwise, if you don't make the rule correctly, and if you don't unmake the rule correctly, you can be taken to court and judges by and large know exactly what to do to interpret the procedure and see if you are capricious.
1: So in other words, if we're looking for Um, procedural fairness and evidence-based policy in the American political system, maybe we should look less at the legislature and more frequently at the regulatory bodies.
0: Which is exactly why there's a conservative legal doctrine called the Non-Delegation Doctrine, which says America took a terrible wrong turn in the 30s and agencies shouldn't be allowed to do anything that isn't specified in law. So that's going to be a new flashpoint in the conservative Supreme Court because there's now a majority of judges who, in one way or another, have signaled that they do buy the non-delegation doctrine and don't think that the executive should be able to make regulations based on, for example, the authority of the Clean Air Act. So, I've cheered you up, but this is really relevant, and I hope you take Holly's advice to have a good look at regulations.gov, because it always makes both of our hearts go pitter-pat when students tell us they had one look and now they're really into it.
1: You know, I'm a nerd at heart and I care about the details of these regulatory policies. And so, even
0: if you don't care about the minutiae of the policies, you probably care about what it does to the bottom line of your employer or the objectives of your organization that you work with.
1: Exactly. This has been an HMP Governance Lab podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our research, come and find us at hmpgovernancelab.org or follow us on Twitter at hmpgovlab.